Welcome to the 53rd episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about that old interview chestnut. Tell me about times you've been a mistake at work or otherwise messed things up in production. So I thought this would be a fun episode because, well, we've all screwed things up royally. Um, and yeah, I totally ask this question or make sure it is asked uh, when I'm interviewing someone or somehow considering whether to work with somebody. If you don't have a good story, um, well, let's just say I've not hired those people. Oh, but boy. We've all done it. And I think we've got some good stories. What's your definition of a good story? Numbers of people affected? I don't know. <laughs> I'll just say, I, um, I, when I was trying to sit down and think for this episode, I, I have the normal, you know, rebooted the wrong box, that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, my closest one was dealing with the MySQL replication issue that we can go into further. But uh, fortunately, I have never... The biggest thing for me is data loss. I've never caused data loss before, um, fortunately. And um, Jared, I'm going to ship you a two by four so you can knock on it. <laughs> this week, I'll do that. Um, and then outages. I, unfortunately, I guess before uh, my last gig, it's it was mostly small areas. So even if I did cause an outage, uh, the number of people impacted were minimal. Part of the mindset that I used to have previously working in this field is you make a mistake, you know, you clean it up and you try to move on professionally, personally to the next thing and try to put those, those events behind you. And you come into a situation where you honestly need to refer to the experience you gained there, or you're sitting in an interview and somebody's asking you this stupid question and you're like, uh, I, uh, and it, it took me a while to sort of flip into the mode of remembering and, and sometimes writing down in my own personal blog or diary, you times I screwed up and what I learned and how we recovered from that. And you, not only are those stories fun to share, but failure teaches a lot more lessons than success does. Very, very much so. I am a big fan of fail frequently and fail small if you can. But a lot of these stories today will be the something failed. You, you, one of us took an action or a team member took an action that was intended to do one thing and did a different thing. And then the world effectively ended for a, a period of time. Um, my favorite stupid is changing SSH server ports on things you're connected to over SSH, and then you no longer have a connection to it because you've changed things and restarted the daemon. Mm -hmm. Either that or turning on something like debug logging on the console of a network switch, of a core network switch that feeds the entire campus, and then suddenly this the, you can't do anything because the console is far too busy printing debug statements to accept any other input. So those, those are the, the kind of the the easy classic ones that I think everybody who's been in this field for more than a couple of months is going to make at some point. But I'm hoping that we can talk about some of the, the kind of the bigger mistakes we've made and the, the bigger problems we've caused for our users and our, our coworkers. I accidentally rebooted my workstation yesterday. 
Speaking of learning from failures, I'm I was really glad when uh, Amazon did not fire the engineer responsible for you know, last year's a major S three outage, uh, and they and they basically said, you know, why would we fire someone that just learned the the best from this mistake? Amazon handled that outage better than really any company I've seen handle an outage of that magnitude. Yes. They were very transparent. They were very upfront. Um, clearly, they were suffering a lot as everyone suffered through that outage. But when they did po- postmortems and had to fess up to the internet, every company should use that as an example of how to handle a large outage. We just had a huge, costly mistake. And the engineer who made the mistake will never make that mistake again. Because, nope. wow, that's a painful one. And, and honestly, a lot more. if they do make that mistake again, something else is wrong. And that's that may be cause for termination. But the first time, especially the first time. Yeah, don't don't blame them. Don't blame the messenger who either came across bad documentation or whatever. You, you've now taught them a very important lesson on how the system operates. Let them keep operating that system now. So shall we begin? Brendan, you're first. One of my earliest kind of major screw ups that were they're very publicly facing the mail system for a university I was working for. It was a smaller university, about 4,000 students and eight or 900 faculty and staff and everybody lived on campus. Everybody was using this all the time. We were running Solaris nine and sun one directory server and sun one messaging server and all that mess. And there was a bug that we ran into with the directory server that if you did a mod RDN, if you changed the the DN of a user object, either moved it from one place to another or actually altered the UID of it or the, the, the... Ooh, LDAP. Yeah, it would eat a core on the server for about two hours. It wouldn't error. It would just, it, it would just take a long time to process and it, it would lock a core up 100% for about two hours. And then when it was done, everything was back to normal and everything was moving along. Now, unfortunately... When you issue four of these, and it locks up all four CPUs on the box, because this is back in 2003, 2004, some early on when multi-core systems were not, especially on the Sun side, were not very available, it meant that the entire system was basically locked up. And then Sun Cluster, the, the Sun Cluster software suite would look at it and say, oh, the, the directory server's offline. We need to fail over the storage and the mail stuff to the other nodes. And it would do this, and then it would, and then it would try to replay the the, the mod RDNs, and then both sides are screwed up, and nothing's nothing's up anymore. You no longer have any mail of any kind. You have no directory services of any kind, and everything is hard down for a couple of hours as you clean things up and figure out what went wrong, and you try to get Sun Cluster back into kind of back into shape, and you get a lot of attention from that. The university equivalence of the sea level people. Yeah, you you get all of the the, the upper management. Kind of asking, like, hey, um, is email down? Like, what's going on here? Hey, hey, hey. And check my email. I mean, and in 2003, email was the lifeblood of communication. So people got really, really sensitive about it. And before I really figured out entirely what the root cause was, a couple of days later, I did it again. And that, that really stung. That really made me question kind of my lot in life and if this was a career for me. Because I took things out at, like, 9 o'clock in the morning and it was just down for a couple of hours, and everybody was losing their minds. Um, so how did you root cause it? 
Well, I started figuring out what was going on and running the scripts that we were using to create, modify, and and alter users. And I was having them run line by line and print between each and sleep between each. Like the the worst of the stupid printf debugging. And then I noticed that it did a mod RDN and CPU load in the system jumped. And then 10 seconds later, it did another another mod RDN and CPU load jumped again. And I canceled the script and it sat there for hours just doing those two. And I worked out that, hey, we can run basically three in parallel and we're fine. So if we need to do 10 of these, just limit it to, you know, two at a time and we're fine. Um, And the sun support, unfortunately, was not terribly helpful. We were not in North America, so it was not a... The the sun engineering that was usually available to to universities was not... We could not avail avail ourselves of that. So it it was a rather unpleasant and firm lesson in... I don't like clusters. Clusters in general will cause you problems. And yeah, watch what you're doing. So how did you work your way out of that? Or We migrated off this. I mean, eventually we, we were migrating off of the, the Sun platform anyway. So there wasn't a, a long-term need to repair this. We had been specking out and pricing out other systems and it accelerated the timeline of those projects. And because there were only two people who had access to the to the systems to actually make changes, it was just very clear that, okay, we are not going to be issuing lots of mod RDNs until we ah, replace the system. there's a bug. Let's migrate to Cyrus. Actually, we were going to, I think it was Zimbra at the time. It was one of the ones that had a, a, a fairly full-featured Outlook. Um, yeah, they had a calendaring plan. support that was pretty reasonable. Yeah, and that was really important. If I remember the... my early 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. And I... Before Jared was born... Exactly. Back in the day. <laughs> Actually, on. I think Zimbra did run on top of Cyrus, though, if I remember correctly. It may have. I know that the Sun 1 stuff was basically running on top of Slap D and Cyrus, but with some special sauce that, that Sun added. Yep. Or it took away, as the case may be. <laughs> so, Jared, what's your best story? So my best story is actually one that I wasn't wasn't re- directly related to what I did, but I observed and probably learned a lot from it. Uh, it probably helped me out the most, which was um, a few jobs back. I was working at a uh, a, lar- a medium sized shop that had a large AP- HPC uh, high performance computing cluster, and they had a uh, parallel um, distributed file system, which is Lustre, and so Lustre. Uh, has what it's called a metadata server or MDS or I guess metadata service. Anyway, it's basically where all the metadata for the file system lives. Um, and so we had that on a, uh, a Dell MD3000 drive array that was uh, directly attached to the, um, the MDS server. And um, so a tech for the company that was contracted to provide support for this um, install came out and he was supposed to be working on a new cluster install that we were doing, except he got on the existing one that was in prod and began to format all the disks attached to it. So this was pretty bad because it didn't actually remove the data. It just removed all the information about the data. Uh, and so one of my colleagues was able to dig through the what we call the soup and find some of the most important pieces that we needed out of the file system uh but a lot of it was was lost um now unfortunately for this tech i believe his um he had some family issues going on at the time so he wasn't completely focused um 
I don't believe he was fired, um, but he there was definitely some tension between our company and the the company providing support, uh, just because it did impact us greatly. I mean, uh, you know, alarm bells went off because uh, the cluster immediately came to a halt. Uh, the production load that was running on it stopped, obviously. Uh, so it was it was a major impact, and it, it really just taught me to, especially if I'm in a physical data center, which is now at this point in time fairly limited, but still, anytime I'm doing something, I like to just double-check and even triple-check, okay, I'm getting ready to pull this cable. Am I sure that this is going to the right thing? Am I sure this is this is the proper machine and, and all that? It just it really reinforced for me to take my time before I do something, especially when dealing with anything in production. Next time, Jared, tell that story from the point of view of the technician. Oh, man. <laughs> I I did feel bad for I mean, we all felt bad for him. And he apparently, he looked a little disheveled when he came in. I think one of our guys who was on site was like, or, you know, ask him, was he okay? And he's like, yeah, I'm just dealing with some stuff or whatever. So I, I think there was other things going on, too. It just it was just a bad situation all around. How else did you guys recover from that, other than the limited data you were able to restore? So old backups and the limited data that we restored, and um, you know the guy did stay on site and started helping us uh, redeploy the the prod cluster, and then um, just kind of hobble it back together. I don't think we fully quote unquote recovered for close to a year because it just took. Took a while to get all the bits and pieces out of the soup, so to speak. Um, but we were able to get up and running. I, th- I want to say within forty-eight hours, seventy-two hours, we were back to a, a fairly normal workload. How did you guys figure out that the production cluster was screwed? <laughs> One of our guys was there on site, and he was actually SSH'd into a the head node at the time, or, or something like that. And he noticed that he couldn't return or he was like in one of the directories or something like that basically he was within minutes going up to the guy and like hey what are you doing and he noticed which uh raid controller or which um mb3000 he was on and he was like oh no Uh, also i think we also had alerts but no one was uh, i don't think anybody had caught him just yet so jack what about yours fun times so one of my better stories was the time I corrupted 30,000 user home directories. Nice. Yeah, there are four zeros there. So this was in the early, mid-2000s. Um, I was upgrading uh, AFS servers, uh, file servers. And we were uh, porting them to Linux uh, from Solaris. And attaching them to a, an EMC SAN array as far as their, their back-end storage. So the OS was located on the internal hard drive to the machine, and they were fiber-connected to the back-end SAN. And I had, I'm sure Brendan probably remembers this, I had gotten really just annoyed and enraged at the fact that that every time we format a SAN device or some sort of block storage device, the first thing we do is go back to the early 1980s and slap a DOS partition table on with a DOS MBR. And <laughs> as we look at using EBS from Amazon today, you get a raw block device attached to your VM. And usually one does not partition that device. And the only 
The only reason one would want to partition a device is to make sure it was as painful as possible to resize or move that volume around in the future. And that was what I was looking at here back in the uh, mid-2000s. So I just treated the EMC SAN uh, raw file system as a raw block device, formatted with EXT3, whatever version of the extended file system was current at the time, and deployed uh, AFS uh, file systems on that volume, tested everything, everything seemed to work and be reliable, moved produ- move, uh, live volumes onto the server, moved into production, and we had about um, 100,000 users, so that was the total-ish amount of, of home directories. And this server contained about 30,000, and that was a mix of, of inactive accounts, um, folks that had recently graduated, uh, folks that were about to start their freshman year, and as, as well as currently active folks as well. And as that server was operating over the next, you know, couple weeks, we realized that it kept throwing odd file system errors. And it was it was just uh, sporadic and intermittent enough to really be worrying, um, rather than a common file system problem where all of a sudden you've got nothing but file system errors. Um... And I, it's been long enough that I really forget how exactly root cause what was going on. I think I ended up uh, talking with uh, the sand folks that we had on staff and sort of figuring out exactly what happened. But what was happening was that um, I was using the device as a raw file system and EMC SAN was using the MBR uh, the master boot record, or where the master boot record would normally be applied on a block device to f- store some sort of state information about the RAID volume. And occasionally it would update that little bit of RAID volume information, perhaps replace it. So I would see errors, I would take the server offline, FSEK it, it would come back normal, everything would be healthy put it back into production. A few days later, more file system errors. And yeah, so I finally figured out, uh, with the help of the other folks uh, that I worked with, that the EMC SAN was was, all, was storing some sort of configuration or state information um, in the MBR space. And partition tables and some more modern file systems are aware of the MBR space um, and sort of the, the space between partitions that a modern oper- modern operating system uses to help boot the system. And they're aware of that space and avoid storing data there. So clearly, an old-fashioned DOS uh, partition table um, avoids a situation uh, what I ended up doing to uh, to fix the situation was I deployed LVM on the raw file on the raw block device, and LVM is aware of that potential hole, um, and that kept my 
um, ext3 file system as a uh, an LVM volume uh, safe. You I knew BTRFS does the same thing. Re- did you do this on the live servers, or did you redeploy on new partitions and migrate data? Oh, I over? redeployed on a new machine, I believe. Okay. I, was, I had deployed several machines, or was in the process of deploying uh, several machines in this configuration to move all 100,000 people over to the new Jack Neely screwed up AFS volumes, AFS servers. So yeah, when I really realized what was going on and the fact that I had potentially caused damage to around 30,000 home directories, the first server that went in production, um, I also pretty sure that there were some AFS volumes I could not recover and pulled from backups. So most folks fortunately didn't have a lot of effects from this other than their AFS volume perhaps being offline annoying periods of time. A small handful of folks had sort of worst case, I restored your data from backup. Um, But most of the file system errors were small enough that they were recoverable to some degree. So you you got to test your backups. That sounds like a win to me. Yeah, the AFS backups work. Surprise! More importantly, the restores work. You can back up all day long, but when your restores don't come up. Gosh, I think that was when we were using Veritas, too. Oh, there's a backup solution I never want to use again. What about, uh, what's their names? Uh, didn't Norton, Norton buy them out? Um, Generally speaking, backup vendors are terrible for yeah. enterprise-level <laughs> stuff. Like, it, It's kind of like antivirus at the corporate level. They're products that work, but nobody really likes them. It's, eh. But yeah, it's the interesting things is, you know, how what did I learn coming out of that? I learned a whole lot more about SAN devices. I learned that, you know, sometimes you got to go into the guy's office right beside your uh, your office and say, I fucked up. I need your help. And there was an awful lot of teamwork and. Uh, to put that to figure out what was happening and to put things back together. And one of the things I was trying to push forward at that point in time is that Linux could be just as capable, if not more capable than Solaris. And I could have very potentially been in a situation where I really screwed up in, in that regard, but that completely wasn't the case at all. We identified exactly what was going on. We had explanations for each step along the path and exactly what we did to clear up the situation. And to this day, I believe those or very similar AFS servers are running Linux. My second kind of big screw up story is also AFS related. And I think, Jack, you may have been on vacation when this one happened, but you also may have been around. The AFS world has database servers and file servers, and the database servers kind of keep track of where all of the bits are, where the permissions are, where the users are, all that stuff, and the the association of which volumes are on which disks. They basically map your file system path to the volume that contains your data. And I'm pretty sure sure it's Berkeley DB under the covers is the database Uh structure on disk, but it's 
it's an old thing that, or it's, it's an older technology that was developed by MIT years and years and years ago. Well, MIT and Carnegie Mellon, and it's it's wonderful. But when your underlying hardware is starting to have problems, you get some really interesting patterns. And one morning, one of the database servers had had a fault of some variety, and so one of my coworkers said, "Hey, um, can you you know serial console in and you know see what's going on and reboot the system if it's if it's screwed up so we can get." You know, because we have three of them, but we like to have the quorum completely up. And so I, I log in and I look at it, and it looks a little screwy, but it's it's not it's not terrible. And then I realize that I'm sitting at one of the prompts because this machine has rebooted itself, and it is asking me to, you know, basically confirm emergency mode or the I forget what the Solaris term for it is next. I haven't done this in many many years. But basically, the proceed, even though there are some errors. And I was like, okay, yeah, we need the server back up. And I hit yes. And the server comes back up. And the error was the, the partition that held the AFS database was no longer readable. And unfortunately, AFS did not do any sanity checking. And it started trying to replicate the, the data out to the other database servers. And this would have been, this would have been fine, except for the fact that one of the other database servers, both of the disks in its RAID array had completely failed, and it was running out of um, binaries copied into memory and data structures that were just running in memory. And so when it got rebooted, it just didn't come back up at all. It was gone. And we had to physically race to the other one to copy the database off of it so we would have a copy of it when everything did finally go completely sideways. And then I got to stand around kind of hoping that one of my coworkers who is basically a wizard um, because the, the database files were so corrupted that the database recovery utilities wouldn't even work. And he opened a hex editor and started editing the raw data in the data in the database files. And after 10 or 15 minutes, he saves the file. He runs the recovery utilities. He says, Oh yeah, this is AFS database and we're back up and we lost. I want to say we were, several hours of transactions behind in terms of users and, users and ownerships and other pieces. It's been a little while since this outage happened, so I don't have all of the details completely in my head. But it was one of those things of, if you early in the morning, if you don't read the prompts quite correctly, sometimes it has catastrophic effects, and you get to learn a lot about how systems are built and how systems fail, um, particularly that you can have both hard drives in a system gone for months, if not years. And because UPS and everything else is there, and you don't reboot these things very often, that it can run literally from resident memory for a very long time before anybody notices. God bless you, Solaris. Yeah, I have a lot of problems with the Solaris stuff, but the reliability was never on that list. I always, always look back fondly at the reliability of the hardware and the software that Sun built. It's amazing stuff. My uh, second story is the time that I learned that I despise MySQL Multimaster application. <laughs> Don't we all? Um, yeah, so got an alert, you know, that the uh, MySQL slave lag was behind on, on the cluster. SSH in and, and look at one of the master or one of the co-masters and, you know, uh, yes, in fact, it says it's behind. Then log into the other master and lo and behold, it says it's behind the other one as well. So, you know, there's a circular issue there where they're both saying they're they're behind each other, and unfortunately, they're at different points of their, um, of their write ahead logs. So, 
basically after Googling around, looking around, that you, you basically have to pick one that you want to restore from effectively and, and go from there. Um, fortunately enough, and I can't remember if it was in the, like the how-to I was following or if I just decided to do this, but I decided to take a backup of one of the masters first before I did this operation. Uh, because lo and behold, I made a mistake of trying to set the pointer of where to start restoring back from or where it should be at. And basically it, it trashed the database. It started syncing, um, basically the wrong one, or I, I really can't remember. I basically just made it where it was, all the data was gone, which for a second there freaked me out. And uh, luckily I was, since I had the backup, I just, I just dropped all the databases, restored it on one, let it sync to the other one, and then finished up setting back up the multi-master application again, um, which in and of itself is just, it's that's just a fun experience. Uh, but it really taught me to make sure you have good backups because, man, if I hadn't have taken that backup, I would have... The, the, we, we did have backups on that, but I think we only took them daily. So I would have lost a day's worth of data. And in the end, I think we only discovered that I we had lost just a few bits of data, but really this was internal wiki and that kind of stuff. So I think we lost a page or something. I don't know. I really don't even remember. The, the data loss was inconsequential at this point in time, but... uh. Man, I just cannot stand multi-master replication. Rule number two, backups are sacred. And you must restore them. The MySQL replication strategy is, or at least was, terrible. It There's a there's a page that I had discovered around the time that Jared was telling me the story the first time. And it was talking about all the things that MySQL does wrong in the replication process. And it was a very, very long article. And... <laughs> The, the, basically, the answer is don't run MySQL unless you are forced to by a vendor who says we only support the the oddities of SQL the, of the SQL language in MySQL. Otherwise, use Postgres. So, Jared, how did you first become aware of your impending MySQL doom? Uh, we had we actually had monitoring set up. Um, to, hey, to, you know, for uh, MySQL slave lag. So, uh, Nagio got a page. said, "Hey, come look at this." Exactly, Nagio said. You know the the master was so many uh, seconds behind its, um, or the slave was so many seconds behind its master, and so went to check it out. So yeah, one for monitoring. And it sounds like you didn't have a huge customer impact in terms of data loss or no. It, How long was the service unavailable for? When when I was doing the work, it probably took me around an hour to do all that, um, just because of my lack of experience in terms of MySQL multi-master replication. So I was having to do a lot of Googling to make sure I was going to do the right commands and, you know, just kind of double-checking myself because of that possibility of data loss. And I think that was the biggest reason why I did the backup because I just didn't want to be responsible for there to be data loss. For me, the the hardest lesson to learn early on in my career was... You know, the system is down. People are upset that the system is down. But trying to work faster, trying to work under more stress doesn't make the system come up quicker. All it does is make you make mistakes more. But I always hate that feeling of like, okay, time is sensitive because thing is the thing is down. Let's go quick. But you're trying to also say, no, let's, let's not go quick. Let's, and trying to balance that in my head can really be a pain. I kind of like the rush. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, you're like you 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 got the the push to figure it out to solve it. You know, really drives you. Or screwed up worse. Or that. Is it my turn again? I think it is, Jack. Go for it. So, I had recently changed jobs, and I was finally working in AWS cloud stuff. Yay! And the client I was working with had a Perl script that was actually pretty neat. It was basically a forerunner of Terraform. Um, the Perl script had several data structures defined in it, which were configurations of, of EC2 setups. And you would call the Perl script and say, I want an instance of this type with this configuration. And it would spin it up for you or tear it down, depending on what you asked. And so I was happily uh, sitting at my workstation testing some process. Um, I have no idea what it wasn't time, but I was, I remember enjoying working in the cloud instead of in bare metal because I could test this process. Okay, it didn't work. Blow away my EC2 VM, fix the process, start it all over again. And just repeat until I knew I had this process working as smoothly as I wanted to. Well, unbeknownst to me, the Perl script had a few oddities to it. Um, if you didn't say tear down a single instance of this particular type in this particular configuration, it would tear down all instances of that type and configuration. So this was, this had combined with some personnel actions. And what was common at that point was folks would kick everybody off of the uh, internal IRC server, change the password. Uh, Folks would get the new password, log back in. So that had recently happened. And, you know, we were kind of bummed about that, but work continues. Um, and I was gleefully testing whatever I was testing, and all of a sudden, I got disconnected from the IRC server. I noticed one of the uh, main login machines in AWS I couldn't get to anymore. And slowly, I finally realized that I had typoed a command of this Perl script, and I had torn down terminated about half of the company's internal infrastructure. Oh, man. Ow. I was called the Terminator for quite some number of weeks after that. And, yeah, I was pretty new at the company and really not at the point where I could bring up the old infrastructure as it was in working state. Uh, without not without lots of help and fortunately my manager and the other folks I was working with on that team were cool and they realized exactly what I had done they said you Jack that's not your fault there's this behaviorism in the Perl script let's get that fixed we can bring up back we knew how to bring up the services back lovely AWS where you can just magic things back into existence and within a couple of hours, it was as if um, nothing had happened. But I was 
But it's one of those events in just the way the logic sort of progressed of, I just got disconnected from the IRC server again. Do I still work here? <laughs> so apart from being disconnected from servers, what was the other kind of notification path that alerted you and the rest of the company to the fact that you had just destroyed half the infrastructure? Fortunately, most of the ops team was also using that infrastructure. So when we realized we could no longer communicate with each other, except for like over email, um, and the stuff that other people were actively working on suddenly becomes terminated, and you can hop on over to the AWS console and see, oh, wow, um, why is half our stuff in the terminated category? Oops. Apart from having a quick conversation about the deficiency of the particular usage of the script, was there a more formal process in terms of identifying bugs like this in other tools or behaviorisms like this in other tools that allowed for this kind of disaster to, to happen? Or was it considered a one-off? Other folks at the company knew that the script had a couple issues along that line. What I did, I spelled the word instance, but I had reversed uh, the letters S and T, I think, uh, when I was typing it. So the uh, Perl script didn't recognize that command argument. Um, and yeah, by the next day, uh, that particular issue was, was well patched. And that was that script was one of our primary ways of interfacing with, with Amazon. Yeah, that's, that's kind of important. Details. <laughs> but it's it, part of the beauty of it was that tool uh, was written by really one of the smartest people I know and frankly was very much worked a lot like Terraform way before Terraform existed. So I've got one more quick story um, just in terms of causing pain for other op, op, ops and administrators. I was working on a large Nagios install at the time that we were finally getting SMS support on it. So we had been doing like analog modems, calling pager services and doing all of that horribleness. But we had finally gotten the approval to get some SIM cards that had um, SMS plans on them. And so we could then send messages to people directly on these modern new smartphone things that were coming out. And very cleverly, I had set up two of these phones, one in each data center. So if, you know, the other Nagio server was dead, I would be able to easily handle and, and, push, and push messages from the other server. And they, they checked for each other's health and all of these things were great. What I had missed was having a parent-child relationship on the link between the data centers. And so one night, the link goes down between the two data centers. And Nagios on both sides says, oh, God, the other side is down. And starts queuing up messages to send. And by the time I got up to campus to physically clear and unplug things, there were 13,000 SMSs in the queue. And it was sending them in serially as fast as it could. Um, but your phones are basically useless at this point because at the time notifications were interrupts. And so you couldn't type because every time you did anything, your phone would stop to send you another notification that something else was going on. And I'm really happy that the business office who set up the... the the lines had gone for the unlimited SMS plan rather than some kind of reasonable metered thing 
I was going to ask, uh, how much are those SMSs? <laughs> but unfortunately, a lot of the operators who were receiving SMSs after I had told them earlier that week that everything was fine, um, most of them were paying per message because this is back in the day. This is before unlimited SMS was common. And so I caused a bunch of people some minor financial pain because I had missed setting up the parent-child. And that was totally on me. I realized after the fact that I had screwed it up. Um, and kind of like the the middle of the remediation, I realized that the it was just writing there's not just writing to a database table that was being picked up by the software that was controlling the the phones, and I could just drum, I could just log into the, the database servers and dump all of the records on the in the outbox basically before they got sent. So that was able to cut a big chunk of the messages out that were trying to trying to go out the floodgates. But that was a that was a fun one, mostly because the the outage didn't impact our users so much, the students and the faculty and the staff, but it, it impacted the professional community I worked with. And a lot of the, you know, you, you work to build up respect between teams and those kinds of things because everybody here, hey, we're all professionals here. We're all trying to do competent work and we can trust other other people to make good decisions. And I took a major black eye at that point for, you did what? And we sent how many messages to how many people? And those people receiving messages were suddenly very wary of getting more messages. So that was a really hard lesson in the, when you're running a, a system that is the it, it is the thing that wakes people up when there's a problem, you have to be extraordinarily careful about when you wake people up and how you send messages. Because when you start just dumping SMSs out, your credibility is also shot. You know, I've noticed something in our stories. I think, Brendan, all of your stories are about clustering solutions. And I think all of Jared's are about clustering solutions. Clustering is hard. It's hard to get right. It's hard to do correctly. It's hard to operate and not screw it up. Yeah, I like clusters too. I'm, I much prefer pools of servers that all do the same thing. So you have 10 web servers, and they're all just web servers, and they don't rely on each other being up. And if one goes down, the load balancer says, oh, that one's down. Let's Let's use the rest of them. And of course, ironically, I now for work run a very, very, very large cluster. And the irony is not lost on me. Yes, I think we have a healthy respect of clustering technology, which puts us in the unique position of being able to run them. Well, honestly, I'm at the point now with clustering that I really want people to just basically adopt Zookeeper or one of the the battle-tested cluster protocols i think raft is one of them and maybe paxos the implementations but, but uh, raft and paxos are your algorithms don't okay. try to re-implement them you'll get them wrong you'll get them wrong in new and creative ways that will bite other people just don't do it you use ones that exist use ones that other people have run through the paces and oh yeah and seriously use a database that actually supports replication correctly Oh. Or it's just a good database? I've heard this argument for many decades. But as we wrap up, I definitely wanted to leave folks with a quote from Monitorama in 2017. There are two types of operations, people. Those who have fucked up production and those who are about to. Very true. 
That wraps it up for the 53rd episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Please take the time to rate the show in Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you would like us to cover. Leave us, an e- leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm. Send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm, or use, that, use at operations.fm on Twitter.